We're going to learn the first Sicha of the Parsha Vayetze that's in volume 20 of the Rebbe's edited uh, talks that he edited over the years. And this is a talk that he said in 1980 on the Parsha Vayera, and it was published two years later, 1982. And this is based on a verse in today's Parsha, and it's actually amazing, amazing to see of the connection to nowadays what's going on in the world, which will be self-explanatory. The verse says that Vayashkev Bamako Mahu, Jacob is uh, on a journey to find himself a wife. Last week in the Parsha, his father Yitzchak tells him to go and to go to Padana Ram and Haran. And over there, you'll find my brother-in-law, your mother's brother, Lavan. He has a couple of daughters. Why don't you go there and find a wife? And he warns him, make sure, don't come home with any Canaanite girls. And he goes there. We know the story that he uh, he went and 14 years, he uh, studied in a yeshiva called Shem Ve'ever. This was a, a place where people studied uh, Torah, mainly our forefathers and their families or people that wanted to study spirituality, godliness, the reality of God, and eventually gets to the place and he finds his wife. Uh, first he ends up marrying Leah and then Rachel, but you know the story where he works for his trickery father-in-law. So in that whole narrative, there's a verse that says, that he rested in that place. Now when it says he rested in, in that place, like it's saying, you rested here. That means, when you say here, that means somewhere else you didn't rest. You're excluding something. Because otherwise, why would the verse say he rested here? What's the significance about saying here you rested? And obviously, it's referring to somewhere else you did not rest. So there's a medrash, a fascinating medrash, which is the medrash is the homiletical insights to the Torah. And the Medrash says the following, that it's true, he rested here and not somewhere else. Where was the other place that he did not find rest? That was the 14 years that he was in the study hall of Aver. That's the name of this place where people went and studied it. Rashi had quoted about this place called Shem Aver a number of times already, maybe five times already till here. So we know about this place. We don't know so much about what they learned there, but we know it was the place where Abraham taught his foundings, his findings about the existence of God and Yitzchak. And whoever learned that, you know, got, that was influenced from them also came under this umbrella. So 14 years, Rashi has a whole calculation how we know it was 14 years that Jacob was there studying. So the Medrash says, now he rested because the 14 years when he was learning, he didn't rest. He didn't sleep. So that's one opinion. So again, one opinion is here you, now he sleeps after he has his wives and his children and so on. Now he's able to sleep, but when he was at the yeshiva of learning in Aver, over there he didn't sleep. The Medrash brings a second opinion that says here he slept, but the 20 years that he worked by his father-in-law, Lavan, over there he didn't find rest. He wasn't able to sleep. Like we know the verse, when Jacob called together his wives, when his father-in-law was on a, on a business trip, he called together his wives and he said, ladies, we got to escape. We can't stay here anymore. It's the time for us to go. Pack up your bags, all our children, and we're leaving in the middle of the night. And they left. And later, Lovin comes and he uh, finds out that they left. He catches up to them. And he says, why would you leave in the middle of the night without saying goodbye? And Yaakov's like, yeah, right. I should have said goodbye. I, after seven years, you gave me the wrong woman under the chuppah. Then you made me work another seven years. Then you told me I could leave. And after that, you told me I got to work another seven years. Like enough is enough. I know you're going to make another deal. There's no way. But in the conversation that he explains to the wives why we're going to leave, he says, V'tadad Sleep was removed from my eyes. I didn't find a moment of rest in all my years here. So since it says clearly on those 20 years that he was didn't find any rest, that means he didn't sleep. So when the verse says, now he found 
and he was able to sleep. Here, he was able to sleep. It means excluding the 20 years when he was not able to sleep, which was when he worked for his father-in-law, Lavan. Then the Medrash continues and says the following. Okay, you didn't sleep. But what did he do when he didn't sleep? What did he say while he wasn't sleeping? Clearly, a man like Yaakov, he wasn't, you know, just fiddling around on social media. He was doing something. So what did he do during those years? So we have two opinions, the Medr says, of what he did. One is Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Rabbi Yeshua says that he recited the 15 Psalms in the book of Psalms that begin with the, with the words Shir Hamalos. Many people know Shir Hamalos from the, you know, before you bend, Shir Hamalos and so on. So Shir Hamalos means the songs of ascending. Loosely understood, it refers to the Levites during the temple times. There was two areas in the temple, a lower area and a higher area. And there was 15 moon-shaped, you know, like half round steps, 15 steps that took you up to the higher courtyard of the temple. The Levites used to stand on those temples and they would sing with their trumpets and they would sing the songs of elevation, of, el- of, of ascending. Shir Hamalot. Malot means ascending. So the songs of Malot. How many songs are there? There are 15 paragraphs, 15 chapters. So in the book that King David composed or put together, assembled, wrote them, many of them he got from Moses, from other great uh, leaders, and he compiled the book of Psalms called the, the Tehillim. So in there, from chapter 120 to 134 is the 15 chapters that all begin with those same two words, Shir Hamalos, the song of ascending. So Rabbi Shua ben Levi says that what did Jacob say during those years when he couldn't sleep? He, he would recite the 15 Paragraphs that the songs of ascending. How does he know this? That that's what Jacob would say? He says, I have a proof. And as we learned many times, in order to be a scholar and say something, you have to have biblical backup. You need backup to your statement from Torah. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says, in the fifth of the Shira Malos, in chapter 124 over there, it says that the song of ascending of da- that David you know, uh, composed. It says there that this was said, Yoimarna Yisrael. It was said by Israel. Now, the simple understanding of the verse is that it was said by Israel, meaning it was sent, said by the Jewish people. Where Yeshua ben Levi says that we know that Jacob's name changed from Yaakov to Yisrael. Later on, we're going to have the story where he has that uh, encounter with the angel, asks him what his name is, and he says, we're changing your name, it's going to be Yisrael, which in English we translate that as Israel. So, Yisrael, it says that Israel sang this, Yisrael. So, Yeshua ben says, who's this Yisrael? It refers to Yisrael, our Zeda, meaning our grandfather, Jacob. So, when it says there that Israel sang it, it means Jacob said this. So, that's his verse proof that this these were the songs and the, what Jacob said at that time. Now, Reb, as everything we have, we always have more than one opinion. Reb, the Medrash brings down Rabbi Yisrael, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman. He had a different opinion, this sage, and he said, you know what Jacob said during those years when he didn't sleep? He didn't just say those 15 paragraphs of the book of Psalms. He actually said the entire Tehillim, the entire book of Psalms. That's what he would say nonstop, the whole book of Psalms. Well, how does he know this? Because he says there's another verse in the Tehillim in chapter 22, and over there it says, Ata Kadosh Yoshev Tehillah Yisrael, which means you are holy and you sit and you give and, it's, and you say the praises of Israel. So again, he says, when it says the praises of Israel, it means Israel, the man whose name was Israel, Yisrael. So it goes on, our grandfather, our Zayda, Yisrael means Jacob. So he says that refers to, to praises, all praises, not just the 15 chapters. So the Rebbe says on this Medrash, that the simple question of the Medrash, what did Jacob say, does not mean what did Jacob do to keep himself busy? 
Why can't we say that it means, the question is, what did he do to be, keep busy? Because Jacob said, when he's speaking to his wives, he said that day and night, I worked with my entire might and I didn't even have sleep for my eyes. So the fact is, he says, I was busy with all my might, day and night. First of all, he had 11 kids over the 20 years. That's one small detail. But in addition to that, he also acquired four wives, right? Or maybe that order, first the four wives and the kids. But in addition to that, he actually took care of his father-in-law's estate. All he was the shepherd there. So he worked very hard to the point that he says day and night. So the question is not, what did he do to be busy? We know he was busy. But the question is, what did Jacob do to be able to have the power to overcome the difficulties during those 20 years where he had to work so hard and he couldn't even find time to sleep? That's the question. So in other words, the emphasis is that at the que- on what, we have to understand what, what we're looking for. The Medrash is looking, not what did he do to keep busy, because we know he was busy, but what was the tools that helped him to get through the troubles of life? While he was in the house of Lavan, his father-in-law, so Jacob was in a real exile. He was away from his father's home, of Isaac's home, and he was busy with Lavan's cattles, to the point that he even descended in his spiritual status from the way he was when he was home with his father. How do we know this? Like Rashi points out. Rashi points out that in his dialogue to his wives, he said, "Your father." When, sorry, when Lavan caught up to him, he said to him, you're such a trickery kind of person. You're a deceiving person. I could also be a deceiving person if I want. That's what Jacob said. In other words, I know how to lower myself down and be a trickering person like just like you. What do you think? You're the only Chacham that knows how to make these trickery plots? I remember once hearing a story from, uh, from my father that uh, his father, when he lived in Russia, under communist Russia, in the late 30s, early 40s, and he was taken by the Red Army. They took my grandfather in. But before he was uh, able to become a soldier, they threw him in a prison. As many Hasidim were in prisons those days. So, because they knew he was Jewish, he was practicing. So, my grandfather, when he was there in jail, first he got scared. Because they put him amongst all these, you know, real lowlifes that were there. Real bad troublemakers. But then he thought of an idea. He said, why don't I make myself like these guys? I'll talk their language. You know, and I'll, I'll like, you know, speak as if I know the way of the world and then they'll consider me one of theirs and they won't harm me. And that's what he did. That's how he got through it. <laughs> so sometimes you have to know how to, you know, wear the clothes of Asaph, like we spoke last time, you know. So uh, Yaakov said that. He said, you think you're a big troublemaker? You're a trickery person to make all these deceiving plans? I could do that too. So you see the fact that Yaakov was able to go so low to even become it means that he even had a spiritual descent. Therefore, we have a question, how is it possible for him to be strong enough to get through the years of exile? Of course, we understand you remember the story before he left his father's house when he dressed up as his brother Asaph to get the blessings from his father and he wore Asaph's furry coat and his father felt him and because he was blind, but his father felt him and he said that the hands are the hands of Asaph, but the voice sounds like the voice of Jacob. So in other words, clearly the voice was the voice of Jacob, but how does your voice, meaning your internal um, expressions, how does that affect that your hands shouldn't become hands of Esav? In other words, what did, the question is, what did Jacob do during his time of these troubles that his voice should have control over his emotions, that his hands should not stoop to really become too low and become like his father-in-law? So for this, the Medrash tells us two opinions. Either that he would recite regularly, the 15 songs of Ascend, and that's what gave him strength, or he would recite the whole book of Psalms. 
By the way, as a side note, there's many stories over the history of our people where Jews would recite books, passages of the book of Psalms to give us strength to get through difficulties. Many, many people. I know a person in Toronto who had uh, had a terrible, terrible pancreatic, pancreatic uh, cancer and his wife stood next to his bed in the hospital and recited it to Hillam day in, day out. The whole, that's all she did next to his bed. Miraculously, two years later, he recovered and he came out of it clean and now they have a family of four kids and Baruch Hashem, you know, they're doing well. But the power of Tehillim is a known, known thing of how it helps tremendously all over the place. Jews till today recite every day passages of Tehillim in order to bring blessings and strength. So we see the Medrash tells us that this is what Jacob did. Either just those 15 paragraphs or the whole thing. Says the Rebbe, we have to understand, according to the opinion that he said, the whole book, okay, we understand. He was there by Lovin's house. He was in a situation that he wasn't able to learn Torah with proper concentration. He was in a foreign land. Certainly not like the days when he was in that yeshiva of Eber. So he would say praises to God. And as the there is a a uh, medrash that says that if you say the words of Psalm, even if you don't understand anything you're saying, it's equal as if you learn the most complex subjects of the Torah, which is the subjects of purity and impurity, those laws. That's how high up it is to say verses of the book of Psalms. So it's clear that if you said the whole book, it has that value. But the question is, what's special about those 15 paragraphs about the songs of Ascend? How does that help me specifically to the situation of being in a foreign land under trickery person, Lavan, or in anybody for us? Obviously, if we know this story, it's because there's something that we need to learn from it, that being in a trickery environment where let's just call it as it is, where people call night, day, and day, night. People don't know anymore from right to left what's called dark, what's called evil, what's called light and goodness. That's how confusing it is. So why and what is, this, what is the specifics to this idea of saying these 15 passages? So the Rebbe says a fascinating thing. He brings down from a commentary on the Torah called the Chida. Chida is a great sage, one of our greatest sages that we had in the last few thousand years. We call, the name of his books is called the Chida. It's basically an acronym for his name. His Hebrew name was Chaim Yosef David Azulai. So he, so that's an acronym for his name, Chida. He was born in Jerusalem in the year 1724. And he passed away in 1806. So we're talking just over 200 years ago. He traveled to collect money for the poverty Jews that were living in Israel. And it's known that he traveled to Morocco and to Italy um, and some a few other places where he went and he lived there for a number of years trying to collect money and send back to Israel. So anyway, so he has a few books, commentaries on the Torah. And he says this idea. He says that the, that the 15 paragraphs of the Song of Ascending is a corresponding to the 15 years that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived together at the same time in this world. Imagine these three giants, our forefathers, they lived in this world physically, in souls, in body, they lived 15 years at the same time. How do we know this? Simple. Because Abraham lived for 175 years. That's when he died. How old was Abraham when Isaac was born? He was 100 years old. How old was Isaac when Jacob was born? He was 60 years old. So if that means Isaac would be 160 when his father would die, Abraham, his father died 175. So, sorry, again, 
Abraham is 175 when he dies. He has Yitzchak when he's 100 years old. Yaakov was born when Yitzchak was 60. So that means that they had 15 years where they lived together. By the way, not in this talk, but there's another talk from the Rebbe. It's printed in volume 35 of the Rebbe's uh, set of books, of the Over there, the Rebbe brings down another fascinating thing about the Hasidic Rebbe's and he said he shows how the Baal Shem Tov, the Magid, and the Alter Rebbe, the first three of the Hasidic Rebbe's, also lived fifteen years at the same time in this world. When, when you pay attention to all these things, you, like everything's for a reason. So Zechida basically is saying is that the fifteen paragraphs has something to do with the fact that Jacob and his lived fifteen years at the same time with his father and his grandfather in this world comes out, what do you deduce from this information? That by saying the 15 paragraphs, what Jacob was trying to do, he was trying to arouse the merits, not just his merits of of saying these praises. He was trying to arouse the merits of his father and his grandfather that they should help him and give him the strengths that he needs to get through the difficulties what he was living through there. So that's the connection to the 15. Comes another question then. Why do you need the merits of your father and your grandfather? Why was Jacob's merits not enough? In other words, what did he gain by having the three forefathers? What's just wrong just him or just his father Isaac? There must be a depth there. So the Rebbe says, we're going to analyze the answer from strategic warfare. A lot of people never pay attention how much the Rebbe understood about war and about strategic steps and the importance of holding on to land in addition to the halacha, the laws and all that, the spiritual components of land, especially when it comes to the land of Israel. But understanding the strategic importance for the safety of people. And this is why the Rebbe wrote hundreds of letters to the governments of Israel over the years. And that's why the government of Israel had a tremendous respect for him. Tremendous. They used to come to New York or call him for different things. People said that the Rebbe had a spy in the Israeli office. That's how much information he knew. (laughs) Yeah, it's like amazing to see. But here's one strategic thing that he brings down, and obviously he brings sources for all of this, and I'm going to share this one with you here, and I'm going to bring you also to a modern-day uh, Israel when the Egyptian, uh, when Egypt attacked Israel, that surprise attack of Yom Kippur. But first, the one that he brings down here. He brings down that the Tzemach Tzedek, who was the Alter Rebbe's grandson, brings down in one of his Torah books a lesson from the way one of the wars that happened during the Alta Rebbe's time. Now, I looked it up. It's called, it was the war of seven, the seven year war. War. The seven year war was from 1756 till 1763. It was the Frederick II of the Perugia uh, venture of uh, where he came up with this this strategic plan on how to finally win a war. Those days, what was the common way of winning a battle, right? Remember, we're going way back, of course, before the days of planes and bombs. There's a different way of working. But basically what you did is you divided up your army into three different uh, platoons or or battalions, uh, right? Formations. So you spread out in three different groups. The enemies would also set up their army in three different groups. And each group would try to attack the one that was opposing uh, opposite them. But the wars would go on and on. Sometimes you would win. Sometimes the other one would win. And you hoped that two out of your three would win. And then you had a good chance. But this, this uh, Frederick II, he came up with this... Uh, different, changed us, his strategy of, of war. And he said, instead of going in for a fight for three different battalions, I'm going to bring all of them together at once and we're going to charge one of the enemy's 
battalions, because we'll be all of all three of us will be so powerful, we'll surely crush the one on the other side. And once we do that, we'll move to the other one and then to the other one. And like this, we could uh, win this war. Which, by the way, this is, this is here. But I want to bring you to uh, take you out of the Sikha for one moment. To uh, There's a video recording where they interviewed Ariel Sharon. Um, when he was the general in the, in the war, right? He, he's contributed that he uh, his strategies worked to help uh, win the Yom Kippur War. Today, he's obviously not uh, popular right now, of course not, because he was responsible for giving back the uh, Gaza. But we're going to leave that part aside now. We're not looking to say anything negative right now. Um, but here's this thing. He, they, they interviewed him once, and they asked him things about him and, and the Rebbe, they want to know his relationship with the Rebbe. So everybody knows the story that his uh, his son was um, fiddling with one of his guns, his weapons in his garage, I think, and he accidentally pulled the trigger and he ended up killing himself by accident and it was a terrible tragedy. And the Rebbe heard about it and the Rebbe wrote him a letter of condolence without even knowing him. The Rebbe just said, I heard about the story. I want to give you a letter of condolence. That's, today it's a very famous letter because in that letter, the Rebbe explains three explanations to the saying that we say when we go to a mourner's house. Anyways, so that's how the relationship started. There's many stories of him and the Rebbe, um, including the famous letter where the Rebbe told him not to go into politics to, be, go for, to become prime minister, but that's another thing. And the Rebbe said, your specialty is in the army. But here is this thing. He says like this, that... The Rebbe wrote him a letter before the Yom Kippur War and wrote to him that the Bar-Lev line is a major mistake. What was the Bar-Lev line? Israel built um, a big, like a wall, a mountain, so that the Egyptian army should never be able to cross the Suez Canal and break through to, you know, to attack. So the Bar-Lev line was... Three lines. They built one big mountain. And then they figured if the enemies ever do breach through that mountain, let's build another one behind that one. And if they breach through that, we'll have a third one. So they built three lines to protect that the enemies shouldn't be able to come through. The Rebbe wrote him a letter. This is a real Sharon's interview. And he says, the Rebbe, I didn't see the letter, but he says this. The Rebbe wrote me a letter and said that the Bar-Lev line is a major mistake. And instead of having three lines, one behind the next, you should build one massive one, triple the size. So it should be that strong that there shouldn't even be an option for the enemies to ever get through. And he says, the words he uses is that the Rebbe was right and we failed not to listen to him. And that's how when the Egyptian army came through, they, I think they even used hoses of water to initially uh, not get down all the mud and the sand to get through, whatever. But the point is, let's go back here to here. Having all your, your assets in one is sounds scary. But when it came to war, this was the strategy of Frederick then. And the main thing is that the Rebbeim like to do is, is to learn a lesson. It's never about what the mistake is. It's about how do you react to a mistake? How do you, what's a lesson could be? And that's the key here. So the Tzemach Tzedek writes that this whole idea of this warfare, of taking all three battalions and coming together to charge at once, which is what led and brought the final end to that seven-year war, really says this is also a, also a lesson in our service to Hashem. In order to succeed in your relationship with Hashem, it's not enough just to fight with one component inside you. You have to have all three main components in your existence so strong that you could win over the internal war that we have inside us with our evil inclination. What is that? What are these three components inside us? So these are the main three elements in the way we serve God, the way we have our relationship with Hashem. One is through love. One is through fear or awe. Ava and Yira. And one is with compassion. 
These are the three main elements that we work towards going towards God. Now, if you want to win over the evil inclination, you have to have a very strong element of love to God, the, the awe of God, the respect of God, and compassion, feeling the Rahmanas, the, 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 the feeling inside, in order to combat the evil inclination when it tries to target us. If you have that, you certainly could win. If you're missing any of them, you could be in trouble. You're on risky grounds. And therefore, Jacob understood this. And that's why Jacob said, I need to have all three merits. Avraham, which represents, Abraham represents chesed, right? The, the verse in the Torah calls Avraham chesed. We have the attribute of, of fear, restraint, strength that's related to Jacob. It says pachad yitzchak. Pachad means uh, uh, like uh, terror, like scare, scariness, you know, like you get frightened or something. That was the attribute contributed to Yitzchak, to Isaac. He had much more like that strength part. That's why he had to deal with the diggings and the undiggings and redigging of the all so many wells because things didn't go well for him. It was he had to struggle like that. And Jacob was compassion because he had a combination of the love of Abraham's attribute and the Gevura of Isaac. So the point is that Jacob says, I need to have all three. How am I going to combine all three? By saying the 15 attributes, the 15 Psalms of the Songs of Ascent, because that will contribute to the 15 of the 15 years of where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob lived together in this world. Now, we come to a mystical interpretation now about the number 15. Because you could think to yourself, okay, very nice. They lived 15. There happens to be 15 uh, uh, paragraphs of the Songs of Ascent. But what, what's so significant? Why 15? Why, why was it not 20 yet? Why, why was it not another number? What's in it 15? It must be that there's something 15. So as we always learned that in Hasidus and Kabbalah, they open our eyes to deeper things. And one of them is in, this, in the significance of 15. In the name of God, the highest level of God's name, the Tatrujem name, which is the four letters of the Yud, Hey, and the Vav, and the Hey. We all know that any time you have a word that has four letters, you could divide it into two words. As a matter of fact, God's name many times is referred to just the Yud and the Hey, without the Vav and the Hey. In the Tehillim it says, Shiftei Yah. Yaz, you'd hate without the Vav and the he. Sometimes we have the full name of God, depending on what's going on and what the context is. So the first two letters of God's name is Yud and the He. How much is a Yud? Yud is 10. He is 5. So the first half of God's name is 15. What's the difference of the significance of the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He? So we've learned this in great length when we studied the 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 uh, section of Egeris HaTshuva from the Tanya, we said, let's just recap it in very short, Yud is the smallest letter, represents the level of intellect called wisdom. It's like you have an idea, it's like a spark of something. That's the letter, represents the letter Yud. Hey is when you take that spark and you broaden it. You take the wisdom and now I have understanding. I have all the details to it. You have a whole bit, much bigger intellectual picture. So the Yud and the Hey represents Intellect. The Vav and the He represents your emotions. There are seven emotions. Vav is number six, has, has a numerical number of six. So it refers to the six emotional attributes and therefore Vav is a straight line because it takes from the uh, intellect and it brings it down to the heart, spreads it out to your arms, your heart, your, your feet, the whole body. And then the last hey is when it's, it divides it or it spreads it out into malchus, the idea of sovereignty. That's what we call the ten spherot, right? So again, the yud and the hey 
is the intellectual components of God's name, that's hinted in God's name, and the vav and the he is the emotional, the emotions of a person, the seven emotions, which is not in the intellect, right? Men put on tefillin, you do seven times around your arm, representing the seven emotions. The seven emotions in brief are chesed, gevura, kindness, restrain, teferis, is beauty or compassion, Netzach is victory. Again, Chesed Gvor Tiferes. Netzach, yes, is victory. Hayd is glory. Yesaid is foundation, and Malchus is sovereignty. So that's the, that refers to the seven emotions. So the point is that when the, our forefathers lived together in this world for fifteen years, representing the attributes of intellect, showing you. That if you have a strong level of intellect, your mind is well grounded, you're well established, you had a good education, and intellectually you really, really got it, your intellect will help guide your emotions. And that's what Jacob was emphasizing in the 15. Not just is it that there's 15 psalms. Not just that there's 15 that they live together, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he wanted to have the power of the yud which is number 15, because in there you have the power of intellect. Once you have intellect, you are in good shape. By the way, in a, a side note, but in this week's Parsha, when Jacob, when he rested, right, and he took that nap, what did he do? How did he prepare his... Uh, his, his sleeping accommodations on the mountain, he took rocks and he put it around his head. Right? You know the old, uh, the, the, the Rashi says that all every rock wanted to be the rock to have the merit to be under Jacob's head. So a miracle happened. All the rocks turned into big one big rock. <laughs> so that's the old joke people say that how come Jacob didn't put his shoes under his head? It's much softer. Why did he put rocks under his head? And the answer was, he was scared that his two shoes would turn into one. Okay, side, side joke. But the point is that, the point is that he, uh, why did he put the rocks around his head? Chassidus asked the question. He should have put the rocks all around his body to protect himself. If you're protecting yourself from animals, put it all around your body. Why only your head? The answer is because Jacob always lived by this theme. If your head is protected, everything else will be fine. It's all about where do we put our heads? Where do we put our brain? Where do we put our eyes? Where do we put our nose, our mouth, our ears? That is in charge of your body. So now, now that we, all, we understand all of this, we have one more question. The question is, why did he say 15 songs of ascent? Songs means you're in joy. You're having a fun time. But what do you mean a fun time? He was not having a fun time. He was in an exile. 20 years under his father-in-law's cruel ship. A labor camp. What does it mean? So why did he say Shir Hamalis? Shir means a song. It's true that the next verse, in the second of the songs, it says, May I and Yahweh Ezri, where am I going to get my help from? Because my help, I'm in the time of exile. Fine, so I get it. You could say those words, I'm getting my help. So you feel maybe comfort, I'm getting my help from God. But to the point that you should sing songs? Or as the Talmud puts it, it says you should never sing song without wine. That's why Shabbos, have some wine, a little right? So, in other words, it's not just song. Song is coming even with the drink. So what's going on over here? He was in Haran. And as Rashi puts it, that Haran really has a deeper translation to the word Haran, the name of that city, Haran. Haran means anger. It's the place where God's anger was. He wasn't happy there. And in the house of Lavan. How is it possible that he should sing sheer? He should sing these things. One thing is to say them. But here they're called the songs of ascent. How does that fit in here? While you're in an exile? While you're in a difficult, struggling moment, you should sing? And think about the videos that we're watching from Israel now. The soldiers singing when they're together. And they're not, you know, actually 
doing what they have to, you know, when they when they're on their breaks or whatever, getting their energy back, they they start singing. What's the singing about? And the answer is, Jacob understood that every journey that has a descend has a purpose. If God puts somebody through a difficult moment, it's because there's an ascent to follow. Every descend is to have an ascent to get higher. And not just to get higher. If you had, let's say you're at this level and you move and you were slipped down and you slipped, slipped, slipped down. The goal is not to get just back up to the same level. Because then what would be the point of the journey to go down if you went back to the same level? The goal is to go, if you went down, is to get back up even higher than when you're where you were. Think about that in business, in health, in everywhere. If, God forbid, you encountered a descent, something in life, it's in order to get greater. Jacob knew this. He knew this from this from the get-go. He knew that he's going to have to go into Lavan and this is going to be a journey difficult, but he knew that there's a goal. And the goal is, as the verse tells us, He sprouted ma'od ma'od twice. Soma, much, much. Mucho, mucho. Well, how is that possible? Because he saw that there's a purpose in this. It can't be that I'm having this descent for nothing. There has to be a reason. And therefore, he started to sing the whole time. The Rebbe brings actually in a footnote here, the famous story from the Talmud, when the temple was being destroyed by the Romans. So it says that Rabbi Akiva uh, was walking by the ruins and he started to laugh. And his colleagues that were with him, his other Torah scholars, they started to cry when they saw the ruins. And they asked him, Akiva, why are you laughing? And Akiva said, because there's, a, there's two prophecies that we have in the books of the prophets. One prophesizes the destruction of Jerusalem, and one prophesizes the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now I see that the first prophecy was fulfilled, that there was a, the temple was destroyed. I know that Israel's going to be rebuilt. And that's why I'm laughing. So in other words, the laughing was about the ultimate outcome. And if you think that's an interesting footnote, the Rebbe brings from, from the works of the Kabbalah, from the Arizal, that Rabbi Akiva's soul was a reincarnation from Jacob's soul. And as a matter of fact, the letters that spell out Akiva is the same letters that spell out Yaakov. If you move the letters around, Yaakov's letters will turn into Akiva. It's got the same letters. And that Rizal says that it, he's, his soul is a coronation. But when you think about all this context here, it makes total sense. Because they both lived that kind of way. They lived with their eye on the ball of what's the goal. The goal is of a descent is to get to the major ascent following it. The goal of Yaakov going into Lavan's den was to get out and flourish. The goal of the temple destroyed years later was to get out even stronger to rebuild Israel. It could take time that we never know when it is, but it gets rebuilt. So when we take this level, this lesson, obviously into our days too, when we see terrible descent and destruction, we know, keep our eye on the ball, that we're going to get to a much greater security level than we ever had before this Simchas And everything, by the way, he concludes here, that everything always has a connection. The beginning of each one of these 15 songs has a connection with the end of each song. And it's interesting. In the first song of Ascents, in chapter 120 in the Tehillim, it, it, it finishes with the words that King David said. King David said, Ani shalom. I want one thing. I want peace. Vechi adaber, those people, my enemies, they're talking adaber, hema, they are talking constantly about war. That's what he said. Ani shalom while they're talking about words, about wars. As Rashi puts it, they're planning wars against me, David's saying. That is, that the concealment of this exile, especially the tests 
that we have in our lives that try to divert us and keep us away from serving God, they come to us like a war. And in this, we say that we're going to sing a song of ascent, even about their wars. Meaning, we're thinking about that even though there's enemies that want to make war, we are going to be singing because we know we're going to be triumphant from this. That means that a Jew is never allowed to, to put themselves in a position to have tests and difficulties in life. Yes, we say every morning in our morning prayers, there's a line that we say, We ask Hashem, please don't bring me to any tests. You're not supposed to ask for a test. But we understand that when there is a test and there is a war, we become much stronger out of that. That's true. We have to ask Hashem, don't bring me to any tests. Don't bring any wars on me, please. But if Hashem decides to bring you to the advantage that comes out of war, then we have to remember what is the goal of this war. And we start to sing the songs and to realize that these are not tests that are going to pull me down and going to keep me farther away from God and farther away from my relationship and connection with Hashem. God forbid for that. On the contrary, it's a test and a war is supposed to bring out greater strength that you have inside you that you never needed to tap into. Think about, he doesn't bring this, this example down, but I feel like it's an easy example. Take it, to like, take it down to an easy level that you could use and think about. When you're walking in the street and you see a big log in front of you, how am I going to get through to the other side? I, wanna, I need a pass. You step back a few steps and you run with all your might and you jump over the obstacle. So that means when there's an obstacle you're now digging into deeper strengths to be able to overcome the obstacle. And this is what it is. Every time we see an obstacle, that's what we have to remember. And in the same verse where it says, the song of ascent, it's in the same verse that King David says, I I want peace and they want war. And this is obviously a lesson for every single one of us in the times of exile. And a special time when the exiles are difficult, especially when we're this close to the coming of Mashiach. That when we think about how dark the world is, imagine he said this in 81, how dark the world is at the double, triple layer of darkness. To the point that you could ask the question, like in the second paragraph of the Song of Israel, you could say, May I in Yavo Ezri, Many people I know that Esa Enai Alaharim, they they it says pick up your eyes to the to the heavens and say these words, where may Ayin, from where will my strength come? This is not to say that you should feel in a despair, God forbid. The lesson is that the descend, Jacob went out and wait went to Har and was all in order to have a greater elevation, greater light comes from dark, and the greater the greater the darkness is. That's why the morning precedes the darkest. It starts to come light after the darkest part of the night. You ever try to stay up all night? Four o'clock, that's the hardest time to stay up. It's the darkest, the deepest darkness that's there. And like, like King Solomon said, The greatest wisdom comes out of a foolish person or out of foolishness sometimes. That's when you realize a level of wisdom that you never would have realized otherwise. And then you say, I'm going to lift my eyes up. And then you realize that the entire descent into this exile, the darkness is not to be affected or afraid of it, but to stand in a moment of joy, sheer hamales, songs of ascent. God forbid for somebody to say, I'll be happy with my situation in exile. Eh, I'm doing okay. We're okay. It's okay. Who cares how dark it is? I'm okay. The Torah tells us, the Talmud points out, that in the time of exile, when we don't have the temple in Jerusalem, when we don't have the Messianic era, we are living a life 
of a child that has been sent away from his father's table or from the king's, the king's son has been sent away from his table. Meaning, that's the way we are now. We are like the children sent away from Hashem's table. And if a person could not feel this exile, that only tells us how dark the exile is. If a person could say, no, we don't need Mashiach, I don't need this world to get better. It's hard to say that. But some people could think that that's okay. But that alone tells us how dark it is. So we have to think about what's the goal. The goal is to bring more light out of this darkness. And then there's an advantage to that darkness. To bring more wisdom out of the foolishness. And then it's revealed one more interpretation to these words. When we say those Hebrew words, Me'ayin Yavah Ezri, the simple way of translating those words are, Me'ayin means from where will my help come? And the answer is, of course, from God. But he says, a deeper way to interpret those words is, is from Ayin, from the place that's called, a place that we call nothingness. In other words, it's higher than a place that you could actually point your finger to. Normally, you point your finger to something that has a name, it has a title. My help is going to come from a place that I can't even describe where. May ayin yavo ezri. From ayin, my help will come. Not may ayin yavo ezri. From where does my help come? From ayin, from that place that's higher than any of God's name. That's where the help comes from. And this assistance of help comes down into this world in a revealed way. And we have the help of Hashem who created the heavens and the earth. And the help comes down into this world in a way that we could all embrace it. And in, uh, in, late, in the same volume of Lakut HaSichas, there's a, on page 405 over there, he, he elaborates more because it has there the whole Fabring. And over there he uses a line there that the place of help shouldn't be something like, don't think of it like a place that that. I have to have my eyes to see it, or I have to look somewhere so deep. He says, you have it in your keshina. You know what I mean? It's the keshina. It's in your pocket. The help is right there. It's so real. We just have to start to sing and be positive and think about the ultimate outcome from all of this. So this is the uh, sicha for today.